Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jaschinski. I'm Ben Weingarten. And I'm Rachel Bovar. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everyone. We are approaching the end of the year. I am actually leaving on Sunday for a two and a half week vacation. So this will be my last episode of the year. So I personally will be ringing in the end of the year with all of you today. And we, as usual, have a very well-rounded show. So we'll start with the here and now. Rachel will get us kicked off with what's going on with Kevin McCarthy's fight for political survival uh, amidst kind of the revolt from Andy Biggs and various other Freedom Caucus types. Emily will then keep it themed on the house by talking about Nancy Pelosi's pump and drama. We will have Ben do a follow-up segment on the Elon Musk Twitter files, and then I will take us home with another follow-up segment, this time focusing on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So without further ado, Rachel, why don't you get us started here? Yeah, so there has been a lot of drama around the incoming Republican House majority, specifically around who's going to be speaker if McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, can be elevated to speaker, given the narrowness of that Republican majority, which is only 219. Um, or, or I'm sorry, they're slightly larger, I think, actually, like 221, I think. No, no, 219. 219 to 212. We can do, they told me they would be no math, and that's why I went into politics. <laughs> so here we are. Um, but he has to win. Um 218 votes on the House floor or a majority of those voting for an individual. And so he's presented right now with, you know, an open question on that front. And I wanted to talk in particular about why the Freedom Caucus, which is sort of the, you know, group of conservatives in the House are challenging his elevation to speakership. Because I think a lot, what's been lost a lot in the narrative is that they're simply just doing this to, you know, take a scalp, right, to flex their muscle um, which they do have a lot of power given how narrow the majority actually is. But they put out a letter at the end of last week outlining what they want to see as procedural concessions from McCarthy in order to um, secure his speakership. Now, some of them have said, whatever, we're not going to vote for him at all. But some of them have indicated that these are the things they would like to see you know, in exchange for their vote. And I actually, I want to highlight it because I actually think it's quite reasonable, right? Like, um, so what they're talking about is things like requiring at least 70, 72 hours from release of final bill text before something gets voted on the House floor, um, you know, increasing the number of Freedom Caucus members and committee chairmanships and on the House Rules Committee, decline to raise the debt ceiling without a plan to cap spending, um, don't go back to earmarks. You know, there's other things that sort of um, up the ante, Right. And and the, the sort of top of the list is the return of the motion to vacate, which is allowing any member to make a move to vacate the chair. Right. It's essentially a vote of no confidence. Um, this is famously how what the tool Mark Meadows used against John Boehner, which the vote never actually happened, but sort of it set in motion the events that led to Boehner stepping down. The rule was since changed under Pelosi to say, oh, no, no member can do this unless the whole conference supports it, which is sort of just a non-starter. Um, but I would point out that sort of the motion to vacate in this context is, okay, like you've made all these commitments. If you don't keep them, how else can we enforce our agreement? And so that's kind of how the motion to vacate, I think, would operate in this sense. But, you know, I do, it, this goes to, I think, how badly the House of Representatives has been run when asking for three days to read a bill is seen as just intolerable and inc insanely right wing and, you know, absolutely like flamethrowing. 
I really would encourage people to look at this list because it is really a, a reasonable set of asks that if McCarthy doesn't want to agree to all of them or even some of them, I think that opens up a lot of questions about what kind of speaker he will be. So um, there are other elements at work here. And, you know, there are two schools of thought with regard to the speaker's race, right? That, you know, Kevin McCarthy cannot serve as speaker or Kevin McCarthy with concessions to conservatives is a, toler a tolerable speaker. There are two schools of thought there. I, maybe I open it up to the group to see if anyone has thoughts on that. Yeah, I definitely have thoughts because I spent like however long um, kind of deliberating this question, the story I worked on uh, earlier this fall that we talked about here um, on Kevin McCarthy, sort of how he ended up in the position that he's in right now. I imagine um, that he will seed uh, ground on a lot of those asks. Um, but the question is whether it'll be the right ones because motion to vacate and, and it's kind of meta for Rachel to be talking about this because I imagine Rachel, you've had conversations with members themselves um, and emphasized how important the motion to vacate is and how important it is and, and how central it should be in their negotiations to get it back. Um, everything that I can tell from Andy Biggs is that he's entirely serious about this run, that it, it is not purely a symbolic bid to push McCarthy in a different direction. Um, it's more to just upend everything, to upend the process, to throw a wrench into it. Um, and uh, honestly, listen, like the Washington establishment deserves that. And they understand that Kevin McCarthy has always understood that that was likely to happen, even when the media was uh, saying that it, it probably wouldn't, that Republicans were miraculously united behind Kevin McCarthy. Um, I, I think this was always kind of exactly where it was going. But I also do think Kevin McCarthy is shrewd enough. Uh, the reason he got to where he is is exactly because he's shrewd enough um, to know he has to give certain things up. Um, he is he is a shrewd politician, um, and that's why a lot of people you know don't trust him probably in the the sort of mainstream right, and you know don't trust politicians. Period is a good rule of thumb. Um, but I think also he understands he does have to give certain things up, and so the big question going forward is going to be, uh, you know, when you when you have the support of Marjorie Taylor Greene, when you have the support of Jim Jordan, however you got to that point, um, it, it just, to me, seems likely that he'll give a little uh, to the big folks and uh, the, the common sense sort of rallying point will be Listen, this is the this is we have done the best that we could possibly do, um, but it will set the tone for the Freedom Caucus going forward. If they feel like they had to give up too much for McCarthy, uh, they'll have a lot more energy, I think, to push some serious buttons and make real problems for McCarthy uh, in the Congress itself um, next year. So that'll be particularly interesting. I do expect that he he will be fine. You never know, though. So I like Andy Biggs. I would definitely prefer Andy Biggs to to Kevin McCarthy. I mean, my basic assessment of Kevin McCarthy, not knowing him super well, but just my observations as you know, a conservative from the outside, roughly speaking, for the last you know fifteen years or so, is that he is a savvy political operative who happens to be very good at fundraising. Happens to be very good at going into rooms and convincing donors, corporate donors, high net worth individuals, whatever to basically give a lot of money to the NRCC. And from kind of the median rank and file backbench House Republican perspective, I, you know, I see the appeal of that. You know, you're 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 working a job where you're probably spending half your time fundraising. So you want your you want your speaker to fundraise for the NRCC. 
Um, having said that, I, 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 if you were to ask me, like, what are like Kevin McCarthy's like defining political views, or what are his political principles or his political philosophy, I, I, I literally would have no idea. No idea. Um, you know, I, I, I would like roughly guess that he believes in like extracting more domestic energy and cutting taxes and, you know, some various other kind of forms of longstanding Republican Party orthodoxy, pablum, whatever word you want to use. So I would definitely prefer Andy Biggs. I mean, you know, it's look, it seems like the votes are are not going to be there. I mean, that's obviously been kind of the issue for a very long time. I mean, you know, I, I remember when House Republican House conservatives were trying to oust John Boehner, you know, the, the, the question has always been the votes. Is there a viable enough challenger? How many ballots do you drag this out? And so forth there. Um, one thing that I will say is I have been disappointed by some conservatives um, who have really just gone totally to bat for Kevin McCarthy and have gone so far as to totally bat down Andy Biggs and, you know, call him like a fraud and a phony and all this stuff there. Um, I, I will name a name here. I'm thinking in particular of uh, Mark Levin, who has been an adamant, adamant defender. Kevin McCarthy has completely impugned the you know, integrity and legitimacy of Andy Biggs. I think that is totally unbecoming. And um, I don't think it's at all justified. Andy Biggs has a very conservative record here. And my indication very much like Emily's is that he has, you know, all the intentions of being House Speaker, even if it seems like that's not likely to happen there. So look, um, you know, if they can extract any number of concessions here, and you know, Kevin McCarthy is clearly sweating, he's clearly getting a good sweat in due to this fight. Uh, then, you know, that's, I'm cautiously optimistic. And obviously just, you know, from a broader macro perspective here, you know, the more that the House can be devolved to kind of the, the committees, if, if, if um, you know, with Republicans control there and kind of a return to regular order and all of that, you know, um, Rachel's the expert on this, but it seems to me like that's generally for the better. Well, I'll uh, start by throwing out a compromise candidate here. How about Newt Gingrich for speaker? Uh, any takers on that one? Uh, but but seriously, I, I think that the, you know, a positive takeaway of kind of the acrimony to some extent that we're seeing here. And I think Rich was right, by the way, this is a very re relatively modest set of asks here. And the fact that that is portrayed as so radical, I think, does tell you everything you need to know about Washington and where the establishment has been and how unmoored the House has gone from uh, regular legislative order, essentially. Uh, but this does point to, again, the small, maybe large silver lining in having a majority, a small majority in the House, that it does create disproportionate power and opportunities for conservatives to make their voices heard. Um, I think it's also important to note that they did publicize this list, and that not only creates pressure, but also can galvanize the public uh, behind this push to make sure that whoever the speaker is actually does comply with these requests. But I think, you know, more broadly, and one of the one of the kind of tertiary takeaways that you can look to from this list is it raises questions that I think conservatives ought to be considering with respect to the majority in the House. Like, what are the three major issues that conservatives in the House feel have to be hammered home again and again over the next two years. Um, you know, additionally, tactically, what are you going to do? Are there X number of pieces of legislation that you feel absolutely have to be voted on and win? In terms of oversight, you obviously have limited time, resources, and money. You know, one of the bullets in that list talks about a church committee. Church committee is obviously something that I am passionate about in supporting, but 
the universe of weaponized just national security agencies alone is massive. And then within them, there are so many different elements of the assault on dissent in this country that you have to pick and prioritize what are you actually going to pursue? And then what are you actually looking at in terms of legislative remedies to the chicanery that we've seen? And what can you do in two years? And how much power ought that committee to have? So all of this points to the fact that there needs to be an exercise in prioritization here. What are the three things you feel are most important? Tactically, how are you going to achieve them? And then what is the bare minimum that a speaker must prove to you and commit to, to ensure that you will be able to hit that narrow list of priorities. And I, I think this list starts getting towards a focus, even though part of it is more tactical than ideological, but an exercise that has to be done among House conservatives. All right, and sticking on the theme of the House, let's transition over to Emily for an update on Princess Nancy Pelosi. Well, this is actually a really smooth transition because there's a, a lot of overlap, I think, between what people are lashing out against right now and uh, the retrospectives on Nancy Pelosi's tenure um, as Democrats' House leader for years and years and years now, and her tenure in the House of Representatives more generally. So as Nancy Pelosi's time as Democrats' leader on the House side, right now obviously she's Speaker, is coming to a close uh, as the, the new Congress prepares to take office. I mean, basically, there's still the house is still uh, dealing with some stuff right now but uh, she's in the waning days of her leadership uh, and you will be shocked to learn that a documentary filmed by her documentarian uh, daughter uh, Alex Pelosi who also did journeys with George back in like man the the early aughts uh she's she's a, a longtime documentarian this isn't just sort of like home footage um premiered on hbo this week nancy pelosi's portrait was unveiled yesterday and john boehner cried again i know that's probably shocking to many people to learn that john boehner cried let alone uh, over the uh, idea of of nancy pelosi and uh, he, he sort of teared up in a moment when he talked about how his his daughters uh told said to tell him uh, to tell Nancy how much they admired her. And uh, Boehner started weeping as he has wanted to do at that very moment. Um, and we're in the midst of this sort of media glow for Nancy Pelosi, who I think has always been treated um, very warmly by the media. Uh, you know, there, it was always sort of within the last 10 years, pretty apparent that there will be buildings named after Nancy Pelosi here in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill someday. Um, and, you know, Rachel talks really, I think, helpfully about how uh, Nancy Pelosi in the last, I don't know what, five years has consolidated power in the sort of House leadership in at a, a, a shocking clip, uh, basically that you would think the media would be much more curious about from a sort of skeptical perspective um, and would have a lot more to say in a different time period about what was being amassed exactly uh, in the hands of the, the House leadership, in the hands of the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Um, and, and so I wanted to kick it open to the group basically during this period um, where HBO has this documentary from her daughter and the portrait unveiling is happening. Democrats are preparing to pass the baton to Hakeem Jeffries and the media is participating in all of this um, by, you know, looking at Boehner's tears very warmly. There's a, the, that video was kind of viral uh, last night. We're taping this on Thursday and I wanted, I wanted to tweet. I somehow didn't get around to it. Like I would love to see a poll of reactions 
to this clip by class, uh, because I guarantee you the people whose hearts are warmed by it um, have have fared better uh, over the past 20 or so years through the recession um, than folks who haven't or the folks who who don't find this to be quite so as as heartwarming as DC journalists do. So again, group, as we're uh, counting down the days till Nancy Pelosi's reign in the House of Representatives and for the Democrats comes to an end. Um, what does everybody see uh, in the, the I guess, collective reaction to that moment and in the sort of uh, retrospective more broadly? Well, it's the beatification of our politicians that I just find so nauseating. Um, and I think this is like the weird, intolerable confluence of yes queen politics you know plus just this like slavish desire to you know sanctify in some weird secular religion you know people who have have been house speaker and it's not a small job right like it is you know you are second in the line of succession behind the vice president it's not you know without honor or without you know a, a tremendous amount of power but you know Nan nancy pelosi's tenure has ruined the house of representatives like i don't really know how else to say i mean i'm not even just talking we can talk about her policy mm -hmm. legacy but we can also talk about the fact that she has been the most tyrannical speaker since joe cannon um in the early 1900s and there is just plenty of you know documented evidence to support this claim you know from the speaker determining what members of the minority serve on committees right, to inst instituting proxy voting, which is a shame on the House of Representatives, like just count the ways. And, you know, uh, like I said, our, our popular culture in this moment cannot look beyond, you know, the heroic role of the female speaker, which, okay, right, that's an element, but it's like the only thing we can talk about. And I just, I'm going to hand me the barf bag for the next month, because I'm going to need it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure how much I have to add. I mean, I, I think beatification of our politics is a very nice way of phrasing it. I mean, this is kind of the conflation, the Venn diagram overlap of politics with the otherworldly, the heavenly, the godly, whatever you want to call it there, which really has been kind of the sine qua non of progressivism going back for a very long time now, right? It has been kind of the, um, you know, I, I mean, obviously as society gets more secular, you find kind of gods and saints and uh, religious adjacent heroes in your politics and so forth there. Look, uh, Nancy Pelosi, we don't, from my perspective, we don't even know the beginnings probably of how profoundly corrupt Nancy and Paul Pelosi are. Um, you know, when it comes to all the all, all the various deals that have been passed, when it comes to the tech companies, when it comes to semiconductors, when it comes to all of these various industries, that these this total plutocratic power couple living, you know, in in, in a bastion of progressivism and elite liberalism, San Francisco for decades and decades. We probably won't know for decades, really, I, I, just how far down the rabbit hole I think Nancy and Paul Pelosi. By the way, while we're while we're speaking of Paul Pelosi, what on earth happened to that story? That story just totally disappeared. By the way, funny, funny how that happens, right? I mean, just as it was starting to look like it might not be exactly what the media said it would be, it, there might have been some chicanery or or, or some hucksterism involved. Um, you know, dare I say, some you know, b bizarre possible sexual escapades possibly going on there. If I can uh, uh, hypothesize just a little bit about reading between the lines, there, that story just totally disappeared. Look, I think Nancy Pelosi's speakership can possibly be summed up 
in one line that readily comes to mind for me, which was during the Obamacare debates, which was probably one of her uh, foremost, I guess she would call it successes, you know, I think conservatives would call it failures, where, uh, you know, someone was, someone asked her about um, the constitutionality, right, of, of Obamacare, I think in particular focusing on the individual mandate, which of course was the basis for the first Obamacare challenge at the court, NFIB versus Sebelius. And the famous line that Nancy Pelosi said was, um, you know, we have to uh, we, we have to pass the bill to find out what's in it. And I guess she was talking about the constitutionality of the mandate, but also just, you know, the, the very fact this was like a 23, 2400 page bill in general, and no one had actually done the reading. So I think tr having to pass the bill to find out what is in it is kind of a very apt summation of the Nancy Pelosi view of politics, which is not a wholesome view of politics. It is a, a, an erroneous view of politics, and it belongs, frankly, in the dustbin of history. Well, I'm glad you didn't steal my line, Josh, because I was also thinking about you know what are kind of the lasting images or contributions substantively of Speaker Pelosi, soon to be former Speaker Pelosi. And what also comes to mind immediately for me is the debate over Obamacare and her utter shock and her expression of the utter gall of the reporter who questioned her on the constitutionality of the bill. She was shocked. She couldn't even imagine that someone would dare raise the lawfulness of the legislation. But there was also another line of hers during the debate that I think is telling and is something that we ought to take to heart. She said, Back in January of 2010, I quote, we will go, this is about fighting for Obamacare. We will go through the gate. If the gate is closed, we will go over the fence. If the fence is too high, we will pole vault in. If that doesn't work, we'll parachute in. But we're going to get healthcare reform passed for the American people, for their own personal health and economic security, and for the important role that it will play in reducing the deficit. So there's the dishonesty, obviously, at the end of it about personal health, economic security, and then reducing the deficit, which is a laughable line. But the line that's not laughable and that I think we really ought to take to heart is this idea that they will do whatever it takes to ensure their priorities are achieved. Do you know any Republican leaders who would argue that so adamantly and then actually back it up with their actions? And I think that is a lasting lesson from Pelosi and the Democrats that I go back to again and again, which is that they know where they want to go and they do everything possible to do it, whether they have to do it progressively, that is incrementally, or whether they try to do it extremely. And then if they fail, but shift the Overton window, no matter what, they shift in their direction and they'll do whatever they possibly can to achieve it. And I don't know that you see the same intensity on our side, quote unquote. Um, I'd also note, yes, you know, there's obviously the narcissism and the hagiography hey that we've come to expect from our uniparty. I think uh, former Speaker Boehner's tears kind of say it all about how sickening that uniparty is for rank and file Republicans and conservatives. Um, and I would also just say another lasting image, obviously, Speaker Pelosi tearing up President Trump's State of the Union speech. Um, you know, this is kind of the sordid and sorry lasting images, but the ruthlessness with, with which she ran and the intensity uh, with which she executed her office, I guess, uh, is something well worth looking at. And the last point I'll make is, you know, set aside the sickening hagiography when it comes to Pelosi. I do think there is something to be said for genuinely honoring and celebrating those who do achieve great things. And to that end, you know, conservatives, when we look to our great figures, we ought to be doing the same in the way of creating documentaries and books 
and TV series and the like, because that shows examples of what can be achieved. It inspires uh, courage in others. And it is important to tell those stories because ultimately those narratives do move the world and they can change the course of history. All right, so Ben, let's kick it right back to you actually for a different topic, which is the continuation of the fallout from Elon Musk's roiling revelations of the Twitter files. Sure. So uh, last week, we kind of talked about the Hunter Biden nuking. And it, subsequently, there have been a whole series of Twitter files to come out. And I'll tick through kind of some of the headline takeaways, and then we can jump into what the implications of them are. Um, one of the first is that we now know that we have documented definitive proof that Twitter really was censoring and silencing conservatives, contrary to their claims of no shadow banning. Actually, they weren't just shadow banning. They were building blacklists of accounts, preventing tweets from trending, limiting the visibility of accounts and even entire topics. Uh, we know that specifically they targeted, for example, the accounts of those like Charlie Kirk, Dan Bongino, Libs of TikTok and Jay Bhattacharya. Uh, in connection with that particular dump, which speaks to the censorship of conservatives, there's a quote from Yoel Roth that I think is telling. He said in some internal deliberations, Quote, the hypothesis underlying much of what we've implemented is that if exposure to e.g. misinformation directly causes harm, we should use remediations that reduce exposure. And limiting the spread slash virality of content is a good way to do that. So, yes, you have the pandemic of mis-, dis-, and malinformation that they had to fight, just like Dr. Fauci. And, of course, uh, in so doing, they were colluding with the national security agencies, as we know, and the public health authorities to justify that censorship. And it always goes back, by the way, to national security or public safety. That's always the justification, as we'll get to in a moment when it comes to the nuking of Trump. In this, these subsequent dumps of the Twitter files, we also see uh, in stark form the internal deliberations and the run up to the banning of Donald Trump which show how arbitrary and capricious their standards were, that this was kind of an ad hoc process done by people with zero respect or concern for free speech who were serving as the speech police in the digital public square. Again, at the very same time that they were having meetings frequently with deep state agencies like the FBI, DHS, and DNI. So another related major takeaway is that there was substantial election interference in 2020 via big tech. And that's shown, and I'll quote directly here, in internal documents, which prove that Twitter was, quote unquote, deploying a vast range of visible and invisible tools to rein in Trump's engagement long before January 6th. So you have, of course, the interference in the way of censoring all manner of prominent conservatives. But then you have you know, this so-called reining in of Trump's engagement long before J6, that is during the 2020 election. Uh, another aspect of these Twitter files that I think is pretty telling is how consistent Twitter's view of speech is with, again, that of the deep state with which it was clearly coordinating. So one of the tweets in a thread associated with this argument is that on J8, Twitter says it's banned, J8 2021. Twitter says it's banned is based on, quote, specifically how Trump's tweets are being received and interpreted. Now, contrast that to 2019, where Twitter said it did not, quote, attempt to determine all potential interpretations of the content or its intent. So in other words, the standard just shifted as the wind shifted and as pressure ramped up from the likes of everyone from Michelle Obama to the ADL to Twitter employees itself, that they had to ban the bad orange man. Uh, you also see kind of some of the inane internal deliberations around employees struggling with whether to punish users who share screenshots of Trump's deleted tweets. You see this kind of comedy of errors, but with serious consequences of them trying to 
de-emphasize trending words like Kraken on Twitter. But at the same time, it was also the name of a cryptocurrency ex exchange. So it conflicted with another allowing of the use of Kraken internally. This just points to the insanity of having these people as the speech police, these adult children, essentially, who have no respect, again, whatsoever for free speech. Um, you also do see a couple lone voices in the wind who are questioning the subjective and ultimately tyrannical standards. There's one individual who's quoted as saying, maybe because I'm from China, one employee said on January 7th, I deeply understand how censorship can destroy the public conversation. That was clearly not the view that prevailed over uh, Vijaya Gade, as well as Yoel Roth and many others internally. Um, so we can go through you know, the litany of other revelations uh, on January 6th, kind of the tick by tick of how they went subsequently from there were no violations in Trump's subsequent tweets, which were totally anodyne in some cases, even though employees were calling for them to be attacked, to actually he might be inciting violence. And you know the last point that's worth making, one tweet in this sequence on the ultimate nuking on January 8th, things escalate. Members of the team came to, quote, view him, Trump, as the leader of a terrorist group responsible for violence slash deaths comparable to Christchurch shooter or Hitler. And on that basis and on the totality of his tweets, he should be deplatformed. Once again, this reflects what I think is probably the biggest takeaway from the Twitter files, which is that it's the same view as we've talked about again and again here of the deep state, which is that Trump leads a MAGA terrorist army. He needs to be censored in silence. So too do his followers need to be targeted, deplatformed, and potentially per prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. So you have the mind meld between deep state and big tech, who I would argue have engaged in a conspiracy to violate the First Amendment. You have a revolving door, as I detail in an article, recent article in the New York Post, between big tech and the deep state, personified in the person of Jim Baker, who himself was involved in censoring on the Hunter Biden story, but was also the former FBI general counsel from 2014 to 17 during Russiagate. We have questions then about what did Jim Baker himself do because he was vetting some of these files uh, in terms of scrubbing or deleting them? And did he collude or coordinate with the national security agencies in connection with his vetting of those files? What about the Facebook files, the Reddit files, the Wikipedia files? Because as we know, national security agencies were meeting regularly with them as well in the run-up to the 2020 elections. And then there's another angle, which is just the media's total unwillingness to grapple with this story. So I'd open it up to the group. You know, What do you consider to be the biggest takeaways? And or if you want to touch on any of these, the media silence, the revolving door. What about these other big tech companies? Uh, it's all fair game. Interested in your thoughts. Well, I think one of the things that you touched on is going to be sort of the underappreciated point in all of this is that, like, we think this is sort of a one off with Twitter. It's not. Right. They 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 all these companies all learn from each other. This is happening at Facebook. This is happening at Google and probably at a much larger scale because those platforms are much, much bigger and their reach is farther. So that's something I think we need to walk into this conversation with eyes open. Um, but the second thing is, I hope we are now utterly and thoroughly disabused of the notion that there is any sort of objectivity or rules about how content moderation is done, because that for the last how many years is what we've been lectured with when we say, you know, they're censoring conservatives. This is, you know, complete double standard that's being applied, you know, across the political spectrum. And they say, no, no, this is all in the rules. And if you violate our very clear rules, you know, you're you're 
that that's the result. And and it's obviously not true. And you see this from the internal discussions at Twitter, where Yul Roth and others are frantically trying to find a reason within the rules or create rules with which to create the outcome that they want. So that I think has to be dealt with. Um, this idea that some on the right have that like, oh, if we just make things clear in the terms of service, that will be enough to protect us is frankly like a bankrupt notion at this point. Uh, and you should distrust any public official that's saying this because they clearly aren't paying attention to the debate at all. So I think we now need to come at the content moderation debate with that in mind, um, that these companies are never going to respect their terms of service. They are always going to be influenced from their top-down ideology. And we are either going to create some sort of um, accountability mechanism for how they do this, or we are going to create the kind of market where what Twitter shadow bans or what Google deep de-amplifies in its search results doesn't matter nearly as much. And that's more of an antitrust discussion. But we have two two options and they both need to be on the table. So I guess just two quick points um, I'll, I'll make very quickly because I want to give Emily a chance to, to weigh in as well here. One is I think that what Elon Musk has done is uh, is really astounding. And a lot of people are talking about it. I'm not even sure that enough people are talking about it. I think some of us we're kind of skeptical. I mean, I wrote a column way back in late April after Elon Musk first announced his intention to acquire Twitter, questions for Elon Musk, and I had various questions. You know, would he follow through? Would he follow through with personnel? Would he actually unveil all the sordid nonsense of previous years? To date, thus far, he has done all of the above, and really huge kudos. And I, I don't really understand exactly why he would be doing this if he did not earnestly believe in it and like actually genuinely believe in Twitter's utility. So uh, honestly, like my hat off, off to Elon Musk right now. On the other hand, the flip side of this coin, and this is a point that we made on this show just last week, maybe the week before that I can't quite remember. It, it is important to remember that Elon Musk, uh, you know, one kind of ultra, ultra billionaire, literally the wealthiest guy in the world who happens to, you know, genuinely believe in the in, in the value and the uh, in, you know, open discourse and free speech and, what, and, and whatnot. That is not a panacea for our big tech woes. And I am worried, I continue to be worried that by continuing to kind of promote Elon Musk and, you know, he again, he deserves a huge amount of kudos, huge amount of praise, but I really do worry that we could potentially get sidetracked um, from all of the various reforms that very much still have to be made there. Because it's important to remember that Twitter, you know, the four of us are on Twitter. If you're in the media, the political class, whatever, you're on Twitter. Twitter is microscopic in the grand scheme of things compared to the power of Google through its advertising, through its search, its algorith algorithmic manipulation, Facebook, Instagram, Meta. You know, I, I, I think like three times as many adults are on, are on Facebook alone than Twitter. So it's good that Twitter is headed in the right direction. You know, bad for, I guess, for Parler and Getter and its various competitors because their business model, I guess, was to be the free Twitter. And now Twitter is pretty free. But let's not lose our sight on the bigger picture here. Yeah, I don't have a ton to add except for the fact that Michael Schellenberger sent an email uh, report yesterday just going through some of the Twitter file findings. And um, what he did was interesting in this in this report because it's nothing like too you know, ingenious or anything like that. But the way he wrote this sort of 30,000 foot view approach to the Twitter files was really interesting because it summarized exactly what had been uncovered. And that was just interesting to me. I mean, it was like 50 words, but as you're sort of on Twitter and in the media, hearing all of the liberal press downplay at the very least, like downplay these findings, um, let alone some have been outright dismissal 
dismissive of what they are to just see someone put in stark basic terms what we have learned um about the throughout the twitter files it just when you see the forest for the trees this is a hugely important story of a major platform that has so much control over our discourse who wielded its power um in wildly corrupt ways and we're learning more about it it's true we already knew some of this but to see that i mean gosh it, it just is important i think to to take a step back and see the forest for the trees sometimes and when you do that with this story it looks just as bad as you would imagine yeah it really does um and just a very quick final word on that and then we'll transition to my own topic there you know uh, john mcginnis who is a relatively rare intellectually sober a law professor at northwestern university has a nice essay at the long liberty site uh, today, Thursday, the day that we're recording this podcast, talking about kind of what the negative feed, the negative reaction to Elon Musk says about kind of American society's, you know, decreasing ability to appreciate free speech. So, you know, interesting to kind of just to gauge the hostility of the reaction to something as seemingly anodyne as a commitment to free speech in and of itself. But okay, let's transition. Um, I will be quick here. So, I, I want I just want to give a brief update on Ukraine and. <clears throat> excuse me, on Ukraine and Russia and all of that stuff. So the quick update really is that there is not a huge update. And I felt kind of compelled just to kind of bring the, bring up this topic anyway, because like I said, at the, at the beginning of the episode, I'm taking off this Sunday. This is, my, this is my last episode of the year. So it seems to me like we are, you know, we are going to end 2022 without any kind of resolution or anything even remote, anything even remotely approximating a resolution to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And, you know, I, I think back... There was a line buried way, way towards the bottom of Political Playbook's morning newsletter a few weeks ago. I can't remember exactly where it was. They did like a little like war in Ukraine update. And some Ukrainian diplomat, and he might have been like an ambassador to the UN, he might have been an ambassador to the US, to the EU, whatever. I, I don't remember exactly. But this is someone speaking on behalf of the Zelensky government. And he said that his conditions, his preconditions just for sitting down at the negotiating table with Russia were... One, Russia fully, fully withdraws from you know every single inch of contested territory, which is going to include the entirety of the Donbass region and, crucially, Crimea, which Russia has de facto been in power there um, for the most part since 2014. So that's just not going to happen. The second component, I can't quite recall, but the third component, which is the crucial one, this kind of gives away the game, what this Ukrainian diplomat or ambassador or type figure said was this is a pre remember, this is a precondition just for sitting down at the table. The third precondition was that Russia has to give up its nuclear arsenal. I, I mean, it's that's just not going to happen. Like, like that is juvenile kind of elementary school style negotiating tactics. So again, I ask at this point, I ask at this point that the American taxpayers are yet again potentially being asked to fund this war to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. I ask yet again. At a time where just earlier this week, I saw a headline the Biden administration is very, very close to sending Patriot missile defense systems to Ukraine, which would be a, an escalation. I mean, I understand that missile defense by definition is defensive, but by sending weaponry of this caliber, whether it is offensive-oriented weaponry or defensive-oriented weaponry, it's hard not to view that as an, as, an, as an escalation. The U.S. to date has generally refrained from physically arming Ukraine with, with hard assets. Patriot missile defense systems, which, by the way, are actually very expensive and difficult to operate. So, you know, you got to assume that that's going to be financially supported with American boots on the ground to some extent to kind of give the Ukrainians the know-how how to operate these systems there. 
So, uh, you know, I'm not building up to a huge point here. I guess I, I say to you guys, why is Republican leadership, which I think should recognize that the Republican voting base, according to the polls, the Gallup, the Pew polls, is increasingly skeptical of increased American entrenchment in this conflict. You know, for, forget about the Dems. Let's hold them aside for a second there. Why, why is Republican leadership just not pushing back hard enough against kind of the uniparty foreign policy blob messaging of just years-long endless war in Ukraine at this point? Uniparty loves war, man. I mean, this town, literally, this uh, it is not an exaggeration to say that Washington, D.C. is economically built on foreign conflict, right? Like you, this this entire town's economy thrives on us sending arms overseas, us being involved overseas. I mean, it's a big chunk of of the GDP of Washington, D.C. Um, so I it's it's a baseline explanation, but I think it's also a good one. But I think also this, you know, one thing we will end this year with is... I think another $30 billion request to Ukraine that's about to be shoved in an omnibus spending bill without any type of process, without any type of debate. And the most pushback that we're getting from any Republicans are, well, we just need to audit it. We just need to understand the perform oversight about funding. And I would just say, like, we had that at the end of tail end of Afghanistan. We had the special investigated special in, in, special inspector general for Afghanistan recovery, the cigar. The cigar put out insane reports of corruption, absolutely hair raising, mind blowing, insane reports. I know because I had to read them, and nothing happened. The, like nothing happened. I used to. I actually brought in the cigar one time to the Senate to have a briefing for staff. Literally, two offices came. Nobody cared. And so this idea that somehow we're going to have oversight and it's going to fix everything, I just want to disabuse everyone of that notion too. The only way to actually know what's going on, there's no way to, to track that funding or what it's being used for. The only way to get control of it is to stop it. That's it, period. And that's the debate we actually need to have. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, <laughs> I mean, it's just been so, the conversation in DC is so divorced from the conversation in the rest of the country. And what's even, I think, more depressing about that is how hard it is for the rest of the country to see up close and personal, like how corrupt so much of this is. And I was just talking to somebody last night about um, where Republicans may have gone wrong in the midterms. And it's just amazing to see if things like auditing the Pentagon, like there's so much waste, there's such an excess of spending. And if Republicans want to talk about um, government excess, if they want to talk about making cuts, maybe rather than talking about social Security and Medicare, they should talk about uh, areas that actually there's a public consensus <laughs> for making those cuts. Um, but you really can't in here in Washington, D.C., because if you say something as anodyne as what Kevin McCarthy said about not having a blank check for Ukraine, which even if you are someone who puts a Ukrainian flag outside of your house, you should want there not to be a blank check for Ukraine because it creates a bad situation all around because it's the bare minimum when people's taxpayer money is being funneled into a, funneled into a cause like that and where nuclear war is perpetually on the table. Um, that is the, the absolute bare minimum, but the unacceptability of those sentiments in Washington, D.C. is just like in incredible um, and tells you 
exactly who's managing our foreign policy, basically. And Rachel's point about Afghanistan, um, we get the we get the papers, the Afghanistan papers published in the Washington Post. We have this botched withdrawal. And uh, we're, we're hurtling straight into the same thing with Ukraine, where nobody can say a damn word about maybe even looking at where the funding is going more closely in the future without being pilloried in the media. I mean, it's just a ridiculous and sorry state of affairs. Yeah, my thunder was kind of stolen with respect to Seagar because I was going to say, where is Seagar with respect to Ukraine? Nowhere to be found. And that also leads one to ask the question, is that by design? Because everyone knows that even to the extent you could track where the funds were going, they're going into one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Uh, so and in a wartime scenario. Um, and I think what that speaks to when it comes to either the unbelievable revelations within Seagar, and you know that Seagar has probably only got to a fraction of the waste, fraud, and corruption that actually went on, and probably to America's uh, national, probably against America's national interest. I mean, leaving aside obviously the waste of funds, but then to the extent those funds went towards malign activities that ultimately undermined our national security. And on top of the Afghanistan papers, which revealed in the words of those who were on the ground, the litany of failures, uh, just abominations that existed for a couple of decades there, the fact that there was zero accountability just guaranteed Ukraine's in perpetuity, essentially. And, and I say that because, because no heads rolled, because no one ever paid a price for what transpired there, it guarantees far worse. It's the same thing with respect to our deep state. And we're talking about the Twitter files now, but what's actually going on today in real time in terms of the collusion, the coordination between our various national security agencies and big tech platforms and other tech related companies as well. And in other sectors as well, for that matter. I'd be interested to know, and maybe someone has seen some reporting on this, maybe not. What about the coordination between our national security agencies and the financial services institutions around targeting wrong thinkers? There's been very little on that. Uh, and when where there's little smoke, there's probably a much bigger fire hiding behind it. So all of this points to, I think, a broader theme, which is that when there is corruption and there is no accountability, it guarantees a conflagration of corruption to come. We see that with Ukraine. And this also goes back to kind of the first most basic principles, which is what are what is America's national interest with respect to Ukraine? What are we willing to sacrifice in order to achieve it? And what is the desired end state here? And those most basic questions have never been answered formally by this administration. And who is pressing them? Who's holding them to account on that? It's just you're an agent of Putin if you dare to even ask those most basic questions when you're talking about American blood and treasure. No, it's incumbent upon every single elected representative to ask those questions, and virtually none of them are doing so. All right, so let's transition to final thoughts. Who wants to get us started here? So I can start and just come back around to something, another dynamic I wanted to mention um, in relation to the, the, my segment about McCarthy and sort of the furor that's going on uh, in Washington. And we are recording this on a Thursday. So you know, what I'm about to talk about may be OBE, to be honest, like by the time uh, this comes out, but there's also an ongoing negotiation about passing an omnibus bill, right? Which is the idea that we haven't actually passed a single appropriations bills and we have to jam all of them into one giant bill that we'll then pass on December 23rd. Now, the interesting dynamic at work here with regard to McCarthy is that you have Senate Republicans 
basically pushing for an omnibus, which will take away the power of the incoming House majority, House Republican majority, to do any kind of spending bills for the next year. And why and that's always important, I think, to consider, but especially in this context, which when you have a divided government, when you have a Democratic president who's not going to sign anything that, you know, very likely that a Republican Congress, Republican House uh, manages to get through a, a Democratic Senate, every fight is a spending fight. Every, you know, those are must pass bills. So every policy that you want to get is going to go through those spending bills. So why would you take away the power of the House Republican majority to shape that process? Uh, and so how McCarthy is going to is engaging with that debate tells you, I think, a lot about what kind of speaker he wants to be, because if he is really serious about this, he should be going to war with Senate Republicans right now because they're about to take away his authority. Um, so that's something that I think is worth watching. And also how Senate Republicans handle this, right? Like if they want at all a chance to get any of the stuff they campaigned on from the border to inflation to, you know, big tech to crime, whatever, all of that stuff can be dealt with, especially corruption at the DOJ and the FBI. Hello. All of that stuff can be dealt with in spending bills. And so if they aren't going to fight for the right to have to, to have put their imprimatur on this process, man, what are we doing here, guys? That's I'll, my I'll can, it's my depressing final thought. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Rachel. Um, I have an equally depressing one that's on the same theme, but it's coming from a slightly different place. I mean, this is going to sound weird, but White Lotus, the White Lotus finale uh, was this week. And I have a piece coming out in The Federalist, uh, hopefully soon, about the show. But I'm thinking about Nancy Pelosi and White Lotus together for one simple reason. Uh, something I think is, is genuinely different about White Lotus is the nuance that it brings to sex roles. And uh, that's important. You really see like very complicated female characters who aren't cast as either neat anti-heroes or heroes, but especially heroes in uh, popular media. And with Nancy Pelosi, um, what you actually have is a very powerful woman uh, who has wielded that power in ways that are uh, maybe you're maybe you're fully progressive and liberal and you support the ends. Um, the means have not always been clear cut uh, moral successes um, or or you, you know you could she hasn't always been a clear cut more moral paragon and yet she's being treated in the press right now as though this is a very um, sort of crystal clear arc of a woman going from stay-at-home mom to improbable uh, speaker of the house, one of the most powerful of all time. And that's all true. Um, but we just have this inability to uh, respect women as, you know, the nuanced people that they are, you know, that they're, evil, they're either evil um, or good. And more often than not, uh, the, those that are cast as good are, are truly much, 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 much more complicated than that. And Nancy Pelosi is just such a good example um, of, of somebody who has used her womanly power um, to very different, uh, very, let's say, diverse uh, means and ends. Um, and us just flattening her into the sunglasses picture with the red coat that she put on after that that wild press conference meeting with Donald Trump and Chuck Schumer a couple of years ago. Uh, it's it's not accurate. It's a waste of everybody's time. And it's much less interesting than the real story. So I just want to know, are you saying that Jennifer Coolidge is Nancy Pelosi? Is that <laughs> where you're, you're taking she, she wishes she was Jennifer <laughs> Coolidge. I won't say who she actually is. So that might get <laughs> me into trouble. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, with no seamless transition whatsoever, uh, I'll be really brief and just say that I think 
one of the overarching takeaways that ought to be considered and a paradigm through which we ought to view our purported digital public square now is that essentially it's not just a co-opted forum for intelligence agencies to control a narrative uh, by suppressing certain narratives and also propagating other ones. And we know that Intel agencies themselves have created bots, for example. Uh, but these platforms ought to be seen themselves as intelligence assets. And that is, in practice, I think the effect of the collusion between big tech and the deep state. Uh, I think you know the notion of First Amendment violations by proxy, this absolutely has to be prosecuted. Uh, Philip Hamburger had a very interesting Wall Street Journal editorial. Again, I would say sort of a modest legal case for criminal activity at play in the suppression of speech via these platforms. But I just think going forward, we ought to think, you know, save for whatever Elon Musk has taken out of the deep state's hands in one sliver of the realm of communications. These are basically intelligence assets ought to be seen as such today. And that raises all manner of very disturbing implications. And I just say on personnel as policy here, there ought to be an audit. It'll probably have to be you know, done by internet sleuths of who are all of the ex-CIA, FBI, DHS officials working in senior roles in these companies who may well have made decisions around censorship. To what extent were they coordinating with all manner of agencies? What files are being deleted as we speak today in all of these other corporations, uh, all of these things I think ought to be considered and thought through. And those are just some of the takeaways from the Twitter files. All right. So like I said, this is the last episode I'm doing of the year. I'm leaving on Sunday and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about political adjacent ramifications of the trip I'm taking. Um, so I'm flying to Israel. I'll be there for 10 days. I'm hoping to see Emin Burke Foundation's own Yoram Hazoni in Jerusalem next week. We'll see if the scheduling works out for that. Um, be there for 10 days, uh, travel around the country, then I'm flying to the UAE for three days. We'd be my first time in D Dubai and Abu Dhabi, and then we're going to do three days in Egypt, do the whole pyramid stuff, never been that either. But I want to focus on that flight from Tel Aviv to Dubai. So this is a flight that obviously the Abraham Accords only made possible. Um, the very fact that there is such thing as a flight from Tel Aviv to Dubai is is pretty cool. I mean, I, I remember kind of following on Twitter that that first inaugural flight that Jared Kushner and the whole Abraham Accords team was on with all the Israelis and Emiratis and the diplomats there. And it, it, it's really kind of a fantastic diplomatic achievement. And it is worth just kind of emphasizing that if any other president, any other president not named Donald Trump had had orchestrated, had brought together such a generation-defining peace deal of this magnitude, he would have been a legitimate shoo-in for the Nobel Peace Prize. It wouldn't have even been a close call, in my opinion. But at the time, obviously, it did not come anywhere close there. And on the on the general theme there of the Abraham Accords, you know, uh, folks who were in the in the Trump administration have told me that if Trump had been reelected in those first six months of 2021, they probably would have had at least two, three, four more countries join the Abraham Accords. Saudi Arabia was kind of the, you know, the big kind of kahuna there lurking in the background there. You know, the Saudis, the Saudis implicitly kind of uh, told the Emiratis, like, you guys go ahead, do it. Uh, the, the UAE would not have done that without Saudi, but they, they think they would have gotten Saudi formally speaking. And, you know, Gordon Chang had a piece for us at Newsweek uh, earlier this week, I think it was, or maybe it was late last week. It was earlier this week, actually. And it was it was about how Xi Jinping has now been like in Saudi Arabia. He's been trying to kind of woo the Saudis into into the kind of Chinese sphere of influence. This, this is part of China's whole Belt and Road Initiative. They're 
basically all over the region. And, you know, it is I, I, it is just worth emphasizing, I think, from kind of like a NatCon foreign policy perspective there. Obviously, NatCon is, is profoundly skeptical of the neoconservative hubris and the moralistic impulses to put boots on the ground, spread democracy and all of this crap there. But I think the Abraham Accords really were kind of a shining beacon of what a realist foreign policy would look like, because by bringing like minded nations together, you allow yourself to actually strategically retrench from the region by kind of bringing people together to then contain the region's hegemonic foe, which in the Middle East obviously is Iran. So, you know, this headline of Xi Jinping going to Saudi and wooing King Salman and the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, yeah, not good. Um, you know, it, it, obviously Biden has had his unique issues um, with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia there. But, you know, I, I, NACON, which I think roughly stands for kind of like a third way between, you know, all on isolationism and, you know, the idiocy of full on neoconservatism. You know, I, I think that we would be remiss to simply just kind of abandon Saudi Arabia, abandon some of these potential countries that are strategic, that are still strategic um, to our foes. But anyway, on a personal note, I'm very excited to do that Tel Aviv to Dubai flight. I think it'll be a very cool experience. So. Um, on that slightly self-indulgent, but hopefully not overly self-indulgent personal note, I personally wish all of you a uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and a very Happy New Year. So on behalf of Emily, Rachel, and Ben, I am Josh Hammer, and I will not see you at the next NatCon Squad, but the other three will.